This podcast is brought to you by Southbank Centre in celebration of the Hayward Gallery exhibition in the Black Fantastic. My name's Crystal Genesis. I'm a podcaster, journalist and arts and cultural curator. And I'm really excited to be bringing you these episodes spotlighting in the Black Fantastic. A series of conversations between musicians, writers and the artists exhibiting work at Hayward Gallery. We hear about their inspirations, how they approach their respective practices, as well as their own experiences of In the Black Fantastic exhibition. If you haven't seen this great exhibition yet, In the Black Fantastic is inspired by Afrofuturism, a culture aesthetic which explores the African, predominantly diasporic experience. Works by the 11 contemporary artists make up the exhibition, drawing on themes such as science fiction, myth, folklore and Afrofuturism to examine the times we live in while imagining possibilities for the future. The works range a medium from filmmaking to sculpture and digital installation, and the exhibition is put together by curator, writer and journalist Echo Eschen, celebrating artists who've touched on the theme of Afrofuturism in their work. We're joined by artist Rashad Newsom in conversation with producer, composer and DJ The Twilight Tone. Thank you so much for joining us. In the Black Fantastic exhibition, Rashad, it reimagines myth, science fiction, spiritual traditions and the legacy of Afrofuturism. Where do you think your work or part of your work sits within the realm of Afrofuturism? And what does that mean to you when you hear that? I think it connects aesthetically, as a lot of the work visualizes a lot of the dominant themes within Afrofuturism, such as feminism, alienation, and reclamation. And I feel you can see that clearly in the unity of the materials called together to create the Cyborgian figures that are on view. However, I think what my work is not in alignment is with what sometimes seems as a lack of serious scientific adventurism. I see a lot of Afrofuturist work that is more concerned with a look rather than transforming an idea that starts in science fiction into fact. Like My Child Being, the way they present reclaims the aesthetics of abstraction, which is a product of Black creativity, but in the service of challenging the gender binary. They are a repository for the work of Bell Hooks, and they use mindfulness, affirmations, and critical thinking as strategies to help folk manage the dystopian aspects of Black experience. So in that project, you see an idea that started out in science fiction, then is transformed into a real-life tool that can help Black folk not only feel better individually, but also connect with one another to help each other feel better and challenge the complications of navigating a capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy. And so I'm saying all that to say that I'm not trying to drag Afrofuturism, but what I would like to do is see more Black folks that are involved in challenging tech and science in the context of Afrofuturism, you know, like people like Ruha Benjamin and the Just Data Lab or Joy Bulemwani and the Algorithmic Justice League. And what about you, Tone? Do you have any views on Afrofuturism and if it's inspired you within your creative practice? Tell me about your views on it. Some of the themes and aesthetics of Afrofuturism resonate with me and what I create in using science fiction motifs and um, aesthetic. I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I, I don't 
consider myself an Afrofuturist as I don't consider myself Afro and I don't subscribe to the future. I'm more of an indigenous original nowist. And what I mean is these are world terms that were placed on things that I didn't necessarily create. Uh, the past is a concept and the future is a concept. And these are not real. Now is the only thing that is now. It's the only thing that is real and it is infinite and it's constant. My work and what I seek to do is to use science, if not science fiction, to be transformative as opposed to be reactionary or rebellious to a so-called power that be. I don't believe in giving something power outside of myself and say, hey, look at me and, and justify me and I matter. So back to the term Afrofuturism, there's things in the genre that resonate with me, but am I walking around saying that I'm an Afrofuturist? No, not exactly. Thank you so much for that, both of you. I want to go back, really, as well, because, Rashad, you were born in New Orleans in Louisiana. Can you tell us a bit about it and also the first medium that you worked with? I think my desire for wanting to enter the creative world really came from my father. My father was a singer-songwriter, and when me, me and my brother were kids, we would sometimes do harmonization with him at his shows. And I think those opportunities to perform early on really got me comfortable with the stage because he was always making music. And whether we wanted to or not involving us in it, I really kind of understood composition. I think also just being a child of New Orleans where, you know, everywhere you turn, there's some kind of performance or music or art happening. And so I think all of those experiences let me know that I wanted to be involved in creativity. But when I was in junior high, I was in a talented arts program where I met an artist named Madeline Faust, who was a producer of large scale metal sculptures. And we became fast friends and I eventually became her apprentice. And this was the first real visual artist that I had ever met. You know, where I come from, there just weren't any visual artists. And so having access to her and working with her and seeing that that was like a viable way to live your life really cemented for me that I wanted to do that. And then in terms of the first medium, when I was in that class with her, when I was a kid, we experimented with many mediums from the beginning, you know? So it was like, at one moment, we're doing clay, we're drawing, we're doing metasculpture. But what kind of stuck, no pun intended, was this practice of like a combination of painting and collage. And so, um, you know, I kind of stayed with that. When I was in undergrad at Tulane, I studied art history. And one of the many movements that I studied that stuck out was the Dadaists. And I was really inspired by the subversive ways that they critiqued society at the time through the use of materials like magazines and newspaper clippings that sort of define contemporary life. And so that technique is a technique that's a part of my work still to this day. And Tone, you also spent a large part of your childhood in southeastern Louisiana. Can you tell me a bit about it as well? Because obviously you both have a similarity and a connection to Louisiana. So tell me about it as a place for you with regards to your musical journey and like wider creative practice? Louisiana was a tremendous 
inspiration and influence on my journey in music, starting with the marching band. My first instrument was in third grade was the trumpet, but then I quickly went over to more percussive instruments, snare drum, tenor drum, cymbals, bass drum. And I stayed with band grammar school all the way up into it was time to go to college. As I said, I, I grew up mostly in Southeast Louisiana, Laplace and Reserve. And I would go back to Chicago. I was able to, to really flourish in the band and really it helped me because I was a quote-unquote shy as a child. It helped me really come out of my shell, not only inspire me as a musician, but even as a performer and a dancer because I danced as well. So I would get in talent shows, dancing and such. So when I went back to Chicago, uh, my sophomore year in high school, you know, there was no marching band, but I did join the band. And I stayed with it based off of my love of it from and in Louisiana. When I graduated high school, I thought I was going to go to Southern and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. When I was younger, my goal was to be like a Southern Jaguar drum major. That's what I thought I was going to do. But I had already got bit by the bug of being an artist and a producer in high school. That changed once I arrived to the Southern campus. I left Southern to pursue being a musician, to being a producer, being an artist. And fortunately, as the story goes, the artist that I was producing at the time in 90 got a record deal. That artist happened to be Common. So just to go back, Louisiana, in addition to the band, the radio, especially on like Sundays when they would play like Fusion, really had a heavy influence on me and ultimately my uh, love of record collecting and music. Brilliant. Thank you both. The exhibition looks at African-originated knowledge systems and spiritual practices as a means of liberation. Do you think you interpret this in any of your own works? Yeah, I think I definitely interpret that into my work. As someone who's like working within a certain type of science, like, you know, technology and AI and, and things like that. I'm really interested in like other forms of science that are more indigenous to the continent. And so I have a really growing collection of African sculptures and masks. And I'm really not only just the objects, but images and, and books. And I'm really interested in this whole like sort of what Tone was getting at a bit about this whole idea of like time being a construct and how, you know, there are these objects that can access other realities, other realms to aid people within another reality or realm. And some of the images that you see in, in the Black Fantastic, you see sort of like, you know, pictures that I have taken of Black bodies that are currently under siege spliced together with images of sculptures that can access, you know, ancestors in the spirit realm to aid those bodies. And so like what happens when you put those images together, but then also they're spliced together with these speculative ideas of bionic cyborgian sort of body parts. And so you have this image that kind of like collapses time as a way to talk about the construction of time as a construct, right? 
So yeah, I'm definitely interested in those ideas. And I think the aesthetics of those ideas and the work really kind of connect the work to uh, Afrofuturism. I think our ancestors were scientists, whether they were healers or whether they were chiefs or whether they were teachers. If you listen to my music, and when I allude to like space, allude to robotics, I use it as a metaphor. So when I'm speaking of space, it is in correlation and to consciousness. Robotics is in correlation to being a conformist. It's funny, all of the sci-fi themes up until maybe Afrofuturism or what have you, has been made to be other and outside of ourselves. And so I say whatever's in the universe or the cosmos is within us as people. Rashad, you use a variety of different mediums when creating work, whether it's video, AI, photography, paint, sculpture, textiles. And I want to talk about your piece, which is actually in the exhibition, your 2019 sculpture piece, Ancestor, spelled A-N-S-I-S-T-A. You use African mahogany wood, and the model is wrapped in traditional kente cloth, and is in an extraordinary, it looks fantastic, a Vogue death drop dance position referencing ballroom culture. I want to know a bit about that journey really for you, you know, from conception to when it's displayed and for the public to take in your work. Tell me about that process for you. It sort of came out of these figures that um, were showing up in the work that were an amalgamation of African sculptures and masks, but also images I was taking of Black folk in my community. And um, that sculpture was an attempt to kind of take those figures out of a 2D space and into a 3D space. And kind of like a sub-context in those images was a kind of reclaiming of image-making processes like cubism and surrealism, which really come from Europeans going to Africa and seeing what the sculpture practitioners there were doing and applying that to their painting surfaces. And so I was sort of thinking about what does it mean for me as an African-American person to go there and reclaim those aesthetics and try to create something new with them. And so as a way to not participate in that historical erasure of the people who engendered these practices, I went to Ghana, which I'm a descendant from there when I did my African ancestry. So I went there and I connected with some master carvers in Accra to create that sort of top part of the sculpture. And the posture is based on a Vogue dip. And I've always done a lot of work with and about the Vogue community, and I found the dance to be highly graphic. And so that was the pose that I chose. And so they built the top part, but I really wanted the bottom half, like the images in the collages, to have a more like real skin feeling. So then the piece kind of went into the direction of a sort of highly stylized 
assemblage. And so I knew the way to kind of create that skin feel would be to work with silicone, which ended up being quite expensive at the time to try to produce that. And so I just went the other route and you can buy prefabbed silicone bodies. And so I went into the whole uh, market of the real sex doll world, which was really interesting um, <laughs> that, you can, <laughs> that you can buy the bottom half of a woman, just the bottom half. And so I went online and I, I bought that. That's a whole nother story in the process of, I'm trying to make this sculpture and they're like, sure you are. Here's what you want. You know, pay and we'll send it to you. So <laughs> eventually I got the piece. And what's always interesting about working that way is that everything you bring in into the object comes loaded. And, you know, so this idea of getting this, you know, like realistic legs that I can connect to the wooden torso to articulate the piece into that was then interrupted by the fact that, you know, the folks that are making those legs that are supposed to be a Black woman's legs don't really know how Black skin looks. And so as a workaround, I ended up, you know, putting tights on it, but it still allowed me to articulate it in that position. The dress was actually a kente that I got in Kumasi, a museum there. And what I'm told is that the pattern in that kente tells some of the story of colonization. There was then this sort of element of drag aesthetics coming in, which I thought was really interesting, juxtaposed with the treatment of the face, which is based on the female faux mask of the Chakwe people of the Congo, which is a mask that's typically danced by men to celebrate women. And so here you have contemporary form of female impersonation, and then you have this sort of historical one. I always say with that piece, like she's traveled many borders with no papers because I brought that piece back from Ghana in a bag, which is insane that they didn't stop me because it would seem like a dismembered body in a bag. And so it, it's gone from Ghana to New York and now to the UK. <laughs> Lovely. If you look at that room that you created, can you share what your intention was of putting all these works in the space? Well, in terms of Ancestor, I think you probably saw a piece nearby called Twirl, right? And in that piece, I was thinking a lot about the connections between whirling dervishes and Vogue spindips. You know, like while whirling is concerned with the idea of perfection and getting into a state of meditation and connecting to God and spending in order to connect to God. I was thinking about spin dips that way, but the difference is spin dips always break the spin and end in a collapse on the floor. Um, at the end of the spin is sort of an allegory for that transgressive moment when one lets go of the binary of the perfect and imperfect and engages in the pedagogy of resistance by taking a moment to think about one's process, acknowledging that you may not have the visionary skill at that moment to make the most liberatory decision, but then stopping, reflecting, and trying again. And so this moment of reflection is, I think, key to critical thinking and beginning a process of decolonization. And so the placement of twirl adjacent to ancestor was deliberate. You know, in a sense, you see this figure spinning in a frame on the wall, and then you see this other piece that is sort of collapsed out of the frame. And so I see both of these pieces being mobilized and like collectively engaged in a dance of freedom. As you look further down the room, you see the piece Joy with this like beautiful smile and the big Afro made of explosions. Like that piece to me is sort of 
speaks to the importance of finding joy. So often in these experiences, we we sort of have to be in resistance. And so I think in order to keep fighting the good fight, we have to call in joy. We have to find space for joy. And I was thinking about how can I visualize joy. I was looking at a lot of images of children smiling and there's something very pure and beautiful about a child's smile. It's before the decolonization, it's before the dehumanization, but then sort of like recreating them in my way with like the red lips and the gold teeth, which is an homage to my home of New Orleans. And then in terms of the video that's in the room that sort of acts as the soundtrack, you see this figure that's also engaged in that dance of resistance. And as they dance, They are destroying all of the things around them that don't serve them, essentially. And I would say what I want people to take away from experiencing that room is in order to not relive the past, in order to change the present and the future, we must decolonize our imaginations so that we can be the architects of a more liberatory existence for all people. Thank you so much for that. That was great to hear that. And Tony, I also want to ask you about science fiction as well. Can you tell me a bit about the importance of that genre to you and that moment when you decided you were interested in sci-fi? What is it about sci-fi that appeals to you? It just inspires me to imagine and uh, create. And it gave me a portal, or if not a vehicle, from the physical or geographic place that I was sitting or standing or dancing in at the moment. (laughs) But science fiction really spoke to me. And even in in the realm of like hip hop, because all of the people that I was looking at, I felt like they were dancing with science fiction themes or sci-fi themes, African Bambata, Mantronic. And this is how I arrived at, hey, I want to get a name that's like, space. But then I was like, well, everybody's doing this kind of like space thing, nucleus. And I was young when I came up with this name that I was even thinking about consciousness or collective consciousness. I wasn't terming it that way because I loved the Twilight Zone and I understood it as being reality and fantasy at the same time, being what is concrete and what is abstract at the same time. And I realized that is me. I'm a physical being and a concept at the same time. The mind is not the brain. The brain is not the mind. I came with the twilight tone. But that's how I arrived at my name. And that's how science fiction or sci-fi inspired me to go that route. Close Encounters, Buck Rogers, all of these things I love, but I just didn't see myself. So I needed to create myself. And fortunately, I had stimuli from like Miles Davis, Herbie Hancock, Parliament Funkadelic, Sun Ra, and Africa Bambata and the Soul Sign Force, of course, to say, yeah, this is where I want to be. Thank you. And you were born in Chicago and you grew up mostly there when you were not in Louisiana. And it seems that your relationship with music is also strongly connected to the city itself. Obviously, Chicago's music scene is hugely legendary as the birth of house, and that is very much led by the LGBTQ plus black communities. Tone, how has this influenced you as well? The first generation of so-called house music, arguably the most stylish, creative, forward-thinking people, are so-called Black 
gay men who were the foundation of this thing called house or house music. And that was the first generation. Then the second generation, which was the generation before me, that's when you started seeing the heterosexual preppy kids being involved. It's interesting you said, yeah, the legend of the Chicago music scene, it being the birth of house, that's great. And it's also the problem because we don't have a lot of documentation really depicting how this utopian society, house at the time wasn't a genre. It was just a way you looked at things. And we had an ecosystem that we really flourished in. It was very rare that we even paid attention to anything outside of that ecosystem because we were so well-nourished by that ecosystem. And at the time, in Chicago, underground hip-hop and rap music or hip-hop was the minority, and those two sides of the coin did not like one another. And I was into both. Um, Chicago taught me how to move and shake and be myself and maybe not necessarily fit in, but get in with even the so-called negative things that occurred. It was a very positive influence on who I am today. And Rashad, much of your work centers Black, queer and trans contributions to music, literature, history, fashion and culture more widely. But are there any stories or work that you want to create that you haven't done thus far? Is there something that's kind of in your head that you're sort of mulling over? Oh, my God. Yes, there's tons. <laughs> there's not a time in this life for the stories that I want to tell. But uh Yeah, I just feel like I am incredibly inspired by Black folk, by even more specifically Black queer folk. And these are stories that have been suppressed for so long. When we step into the creative space, it's sort of like our secret weapon. We have such a unique experience and existence that there's just so much that we can pull from when we really step into the centrality of that experience. I'm really excited about my first feature-length doc that I'm working on right now. It's called Get Your Tens. I'm hoping to have it done by 2025. It's uh, essentially a film about this dance practice, which started by Black and Latinx people in Harlem and the Bronx, entered the global stage, you know, and sort of the politics of appropriation. And the story is told through my artistic practice, but like, you know, I'm an artist who doesn't only work with inanimate objects. The people in my work are the material and those people come loaded with their own experiences. And so I'm really excited about that. And I'm also excited about some episodic stuff that I'm writing as well. Great. When you're not creating or thinking about creating, what are you doing? I try to catch up on the mountain of books that I need to read. I spend time with friends and family, travel, meditate, eat, drink with people I love, make love, um, (laughs) the usual thing one does to like call in joy. I think you have to be reflective sometimes, you know, you want to be living life so you have something to talk about. 
And so, yeah, sometimes I am just in a state of discovery and, mm-hmm. you know, and being. Actually, I'm just coming off of a, a long fast from creating. I wanted to be present with life. I have a three-year-old daughter. Um, I'm cutting grass. And, and this inspires me because I'm missing creating. When I come to creation, I come with fresh eyes and uh, clean hands. So, yes, life for me does inspire my art. My goal is that my art inspires my life and others that are privy to it. Rashad Newsom and The Twilight Tone, thank you. Thank you so much to all the artists and guests for taking part in these conversations. I'm your host, Crystal Genesis. This show is produced by Jaja Mohammed and researched by Zara Martin. In the Black Fantastic exhibition is on at Hayward Gallery until the 18th of September 2022. Find out more about the exhibition at southbankcentre.co.uk and on Instagram at hayward.gallery and also check out their Twitter at Hayward Gallery. 